Okay. It is Mother's Day. Jonathan, could you bring me a water? They're in that. They're in that. Um, the one on the right. Let me make sure we're going here. Um, I'm really excited about today's message. And um, I hope that you'll be just excited about it as I am. You see, between the story of um, one of Jesus' greatest, greatest miracles, when he fed, he took loaves and fishes and fed 5,000 men, which led up to this self-revelation that he was he was the bread of life. He was the bread of life. There's this he's asked a very important question by the people who had just been fed bread and fish. And this question that they asked, you know, we've been spending a lot of time in recent weeks talking about great questions of the Bible. But this question that that these people asked Jesus lies at the very heart of being a Christian. Lies at the very heart of following Christ Jesus. And so I figured it was, it was important for us to look at that today. So if you would like to, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And what I'm going to do is read through the story and then make comments on the various uh, verses as we go through this. And then there's a couple of illustrations that I want to share with you today. So... Um, but again, the, 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 the initial thinking is this is that lies at the very heart of being a Christian. The very heart of knowing God. John chapter 6, starting the verse 1. After this, so he's referring back to what happened in chapter 5. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Let's pause here. The crowd was following Jesus that day because he was out in the countryside healing, the Bible says, every sick person who came to him. Now just think about how excited people would be to see people made whole instantly right before their eyes. Remember, there were no hospitals, there were no x-rays, there was no understanding of germs or bacteria or viruses, there was no acupuncture, there was no developed medicines, and they were seeing people healed instantly right before their eyes. Anyone who came, any particular ailment or disease or injury they had, They were coming to Jesus. Even the ones with the uh, born disabled were coming to him and he was making them well. No wonder there was such a crowd. Now, that was previous 
this particular day, what was going to happen was his ministry was going to grow to give not just the sick and injured something, but to give something that every person in the crowd must have to survive and to live. Food. We don't eat. We don't live very long. We have to have food. And this is the type of, a, of example that Jesus was going to set this day. We have to have food to live. So, and then look how he tests Philip. You know, 200 denarii. How much is that worth? Anybody guess? 200 denarii. It's a year's worth of wages. So, Susan, whatever you make in a year, that's how much it would have cost Philip's guess was to buy food for these people. That's probably a lot of of money, 200 denarii. Basically, they worked for one denarii a day. So 200 days or more. Uh, Jesus was asking Philip to do the impossible. Go buy bread. Well, there's, there's no stores. There's no 200 denarii available to serve all these people. So Jesus was saying, do the impossible, Philip. Go do it. But he said it to test Philip. Have you ever felt like you've been tested by God to do the impossible? (laughs) This is where we find that Jesus does this. Okay, let's go on. Verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? As I was sitting over here beside Simon, he was whispering to me, he says, is dad singing that God's love is better than life? Wow. <laughs> and then he said, you know, it's only through Jesus that we can go to God the Father in heaven. I said, yes, that's right, Simon. So I can tell Simon is getting the good food. But anyway, uh, that's what Simon brought with him this morning. Verse 10 says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish, as much as they wanted. Men who had not had breakfast, you know. Uh, And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Let's just take it at face value. That's the way, it's, that's the way this is written. This is written for us to understand this. This is real history recorded eyewitnesses. Jesus took five loaves of bread, two fish, blessed it, broke it, and gave it and served these people. And there were 12 baskets left over. Yesterday, the previous day and prior, it was just the sick that had been ministered to. But this day, he would touch the lives of 5,000 men plus the women and children. The writers in those days would typically only number the men. And so you can guess how many other women and children there were also there. So probably at least another five, 6,000 people. So really he fed maybe 11,000 people. Um, if you've ever been to Cardiff-Finley Stadium, 
know, there's two there's two decks of of seats. One section, so the upper west side section is eleven thousand people. Just to give you a, a mental image, that's eleven thousand people. Now, I've also worked concessions at NC State, and I know if you're going to feed eleven thousand people, it's going to take more than five loaves of bread and two fish. <laughs> yeah, it's going to take a lot more than that. Uh, but eleven thousand people is what they can put in one of those sections, and I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm just mentally there. There's that many people listening to Jesus speak. I'm thinking, how in the world did they hear him? And how much grass would it take for eleven thousand people to sit down? And then how long would it take the disciples, the twelve disciples, to serve them all with bread and fish? And I'm thinking, this is a big deal. This is huge. And there's Jesus breaking bread. And as he breaks it, it must grow right in his hand to break off more. I mean, you don't feed 11,000 people by breaking off little pieces. I mean, it's going to be massive. Anyway, that's what's what was happening. So a miracle has happened. And it's hard for us to under- comprehend and explain it. But this is what the Bible teaches us. The supply of food never ended until 11,000 people had eaten their fill, had all they wanted. And then there was some left over. So you can imagine what the crowd is thinking now, right? Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, they knew the Old Testament that there was a prophet coming. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is pretty telling. You can imagine this feeding ministry is pretty popular with all the people. And just to think that there are 11,000 people following Jesus around in the countryside. I mean, it's almost like the Pope, right? There's probably 11,000 people that would follow the Pope around. And they were so they were so delighted in it that they wanted to make him king. You know, there's still people like this today. If there were two men who would come to Raleigh tomorrow and one would promise healing and meals to anyone who wanted them. And the other would come and promise peace and happiness to anyone who wanted that. Which of these two men would draw the biggest crowd? Probably the one who would heal all their diseases and feed them food to fill them, right? So we can't judge these people for that because we would we know we would do probably the same thing. We'd probably do the same thing. Um, the people get so excited that Jesus thinks, um, I've got to escape this. So what does he do? He climbs a mountain by himself. Well, you start climbing mountains and there's people not going to go follow you. That's hard work. So he climbs the mountain because his purpose was not to be proclaimed as a political king. No, that was much too little a job for Jesus because he was going to be the savior of the world. And he couldn't he couldn't stop. He couldn't stoop to be a king because he was savior. Let's move on. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea So it was dark. 
I mean, normally people don't go out in their boats in the dark. But that's what happened. The disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Don't you love how Scripture understates things? You know, it's so calm. It's clear, it's simple, it's not sensational, but it gets directly to the point. You know, John doesn't tell us that even if they had rowed four miles, that they were not yet halfway across the lake. The lake is eight miles across. So they're halfway across the lake, pitch black darkness. And somehow they see this man walking towards them, making faster progress than they were making, rowing across the lake. And they were frightened. Have any of y'all been out on a small rowboat at night in a storm-tossed lake? Susan, if you had seen somebody walking towards you, <laughs> frightened would be an understatement, right? Yeah, you're already pretty petrified. And so this is just another layer of I'm seeing a ghost, you know. Why does John tell us this stuff? I mean, why, why are these things written in the scriptures that we would know this? You know, this is clearly another of Jesus' miracles, but it seems that John records it just so that we will know how Jesus got across the lake because of what happens the next day. It's a setup for the next day. So, and also, there's this other thing that we might marvel at the extent of Jesus' command over all aspects of nature. I mean, he could have said, peace be still, and the lake would have gotten calm. He could have said, lake be frozen, and he would walk across on solid ice. But no, he didn't. He, didn't, he just walked across the stormy waves. Wow. So if you weren't impressed with feeding 11,000 people, would you be impressed upon walking across stormy waves? Okay. John doesn't stay long here. He jumps right back into the story. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So it's a little CSI investigation going on. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they're going to find this guy. Now, this wasn't everybody that was fed the fish and the loaves the previous day. This was only the ones who stayed overnight, camped out in the fields with no tents, no sleeping bags, just made themselves a little place in the mat and the grass and laid down to sleep. Of course, it was, it was still no simple matter to stay overnight because there, there were no hotels, there was no restaurants, there's no shelter or food of any kind where they were. But these people were serious about pursuing Jesus. 
would anybody here go camp out overnight with no tent or provisions of any sort and then get up and row eight miles across the lake on the perhaps chance that you might find the person you were looking for? Has anybody rowed eight miles? Anybody rowed a mile? Anybody rowed <laughs> half a mile? I mean, they were these people. They had they had they had separated the ones who just ate and had to fill and went home. These were the guys. They were pursuing him. They they stayed overnight. They rode eight miles on the chance that he might be there. You're with me. But of what difficulty is it to spend the night in the open fields and rowing eight miles when you're looking for a prophet who can fill your stomach and heal all your sicknesses and diseases? They they wanted him. Didn't they? They wanted you got from a from a worldly perspective, they wanted to find him. You got to you got to get to that point with me this morning. They wanted to find him. They were willing to endure great hardship to find him. Right. That's where we are. Everybody, everybody. That's where we are in this story. They were they were going to search him and find him. Now, a quick comment on the text before we go on, because Jesus is going to use a phrase that needs a little bit of definition. He's going to say truly, truly, or verily, verily in some different scriptures. And this word truly comes from the word amen, which means so be it. Typically, we use the word amen at the end of a prayer. Like, you know, Greg would pray and Pat would say amen. She's saying she's agreeing with the prayer. She's saying so be it. May that prayer be true. So be it. But Jesus uses the word twice. Not at the end, at the beginning. And that construction has a little bit different meaning. Leading off with truly, truly implies, not only implies that what follows is true, but that the person saying it has firsthand knowledge of its truth. And he has authority to say it. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit different. It's not just saying I'm agreeing with you that it's true. It's saying I have authority to tell you this. I have firsthand knowledge of this. This is true. That's what it means. Um, <clears throat> I want you to remember this every time you see truly, truly when you read the scriptures. Firsthand original knowledge that this is true. And I have authority to tell you this. Pretty powerful. So, okay, verse 25, we're getting down to the crux of the matter here. When they found him on the other side of the sea, and I don't know how many people were left. 11,000, maybe we're down to, we don't know, some smaller portion. Because 11,000 people didn't take a boat across. We know that didn't happen. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. You are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So the crowd asked him this first question. When did you come? 
They were still trying to figure out all the circumstances of the disciples leaving in a single boat, Jesus not being in it, and now Jesus is here. They're trying to figure out how did that happen? But Jesus tells them, that's not the point of your question. The real issue here is is that you only want me because I gave you free food. He kind of blows off the first question and goes right to the heart. He then continues. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, to set a seal is, is to give approval and to stamp with authority and assurance that what is in, under the seal is approved and good and right. And Jesus is claiming that for himself. He's saying, God the Father has given me his seal. I am his authorized representative. <coughs> Which may be the most important phrase in this section. But Jesus exhorts them to move their thoughts from pursuing the the miracle provision of food to a far greater gift, the miracle of eternal life. Earthly bread, although it perishes, it sustains life on this earth, but Jesus is the bread that sustains life for eternity. He contrasts the trouble they went to find a meal overnight in the grass, rowing eight miles across on the chance of finding him. They contrast that level of work and tells them, uh, you know, they had, in, but they, even doing that, they had an in, in ignorance and indifference to obtain the true bread from heaven. Jesus tells them not to work for the food that perishes more than they work for the food of eternal life, which Jesus gives. And then Jesus adds this bold claim. He says, for God the Father has set his approval on him. You know, so he's saying, he says, truly, truly, I say this, I'm, this is original idea with me, I have the authority to say it. And then this is also, I have been approved by God the Father to be telling you these things. So Jesus has opened up the kimono of who he is. You just wanted to find me because you were hungry, but let me tell you what you really need. You need me. You need me. The people think, uh, well, let me say, that's really quite a powerful endorsement, don't you think, Jesus is claiming. People who say that Jesus never claimed to be who he said he is, but he, he did. This is a powerful endorsement. Jesus claims to be God's appointed representative on the earth, the one who gives food for eternal life. So here we are. But the crowd doesn't quite get it. They say, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And this is the question of the day. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Add this to your list of sermon questions over the past couple of months. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is their second question, and it combines the ideas about their work. And, well, Jesus brought up this thing about God. I mean, they were all about their stomachs, and Jesus brings in this whole idea of God. And so they combine the two things and come up with this question about the works of God. But if you think that question, what can I do to do the works of God? I mean, isn't that a presumptuous question? I mean, what human being can do the works of God? That's kind of a, that that has a very low view of God and a very high view of self, doesn't it? I mean, think about the question. 
Well, what can I do to do God's works? Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not God. But that's their question. So they have a very low view of God and a very exalted view of themselves, right? They seem sure that if they wish to do so, that they were capable of doing works with which God would be pleased. Now, how would you answer this question? I know, but how would you answer it? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But that's my punchline, so hang on. If you survey all the major religions of the world, they have an answer for that question. Do good is at the top of the list. Work hard. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't steal. Give to the poor. Help your neighbor. Try to be the best person you can be. That's what all the major religions of the world say, except for one religion. Christianity. And then how does Jesus answer this question? But before going further, I want to illustrate something for you. Now, I showed Julie this earlier. She wasn't all that impressed. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure you're going to bear me out. When you see something, it's not always what you see, right? So what do you what do you see? <laughs> huh? What do you, what do you see? But what? Who, who is this? Grumpy Granny. Lisa. Grumpy Granny. <laughs> Did y'all see Grumpy Granny? What's that? Yeah, I see your nose. There's her nose and her chin and her eyes, and she's got this big. Alright, so so y'all who said upside down, you you were kind of right because who do you see now? That's what I was seeing upside down. Now actually, this, yeah. this is a marriage uh, thing. This is after marriage, before marriage. So, but that's that's one. So things are not things are not always like you expect when you see them, right? Now, the other one, the picture is not quite as large. I'm going to get Jason to help me. You hold this one. And just one. Do you, what do you see? Do you see an old woman with a big nose? Or do you see a young girl looking off to the side? Yes. Yeah. Do you see the old woman? Do you see the old woman? See the old woman? And the young woman? It depends on. This is just a little bit different picture. <laughs> you see the. I've trained myself to see the young woman. <laughs> well, what what are these illusions showing us? It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of where you're coming from when you look at the picture. It's called a gestalt. Yeah, yeah. We have a professional here who probably does this at work. <laughs> This one is even scarier because of the, of the eye. The eye becomes an ear, right? Mm-hmm. So y'all are welcome to come look at these later. <coughs> Can you see the old woman? Can you see the young woman? Um, when we read the scriptures, we have to remember that sometimes what appears at first glance to be one thing 
may actually be something else. When we read the scriptures, we we have to let the spirit bring them to life for us. God's truth may look different than what you expect it to look like. You You might not expect him to say give. And it shall be given to you. You might not expect it to say it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You might not expect it to say love your enemies and pray for them. You have to look at the scripture and understand what it's teaching us. God's truth may feel different. It may offend you. God's truth may offend you in some way. That's okay. I call it the equal opportunity offender. It it offends everybody. And it has to if it's true truth, right? But God's truth is eternal and it's not merely a pointer to the real thing. It is the real thing. So we don't judge it. God's word judges us. When you read the scriptures, we, we let the scripture read us, reads our heart. And like a mirror, it shows us what's in our heart. When God gives uh, God's truth is not conformed to the ways of the world. He gives this truth to us to transform us into the new person who lives believing God in his ways. Now, there's one more key thought before I go on. Sometimes in the Bible, when Jesus is asked a question, he seems he seems to actually answer a different question than, than what was asked. We, we just saw that in verse 25, right? They asked, when did you get here? Jesus' answer has nothing to do about when they got here, when he got there. His answer has to do with everything of why. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He doesn't answer the question of when. Blows right by it. He answers the question of why. He answers a deeper question of why. The truly, truly phrase reminds us to listen up for a superior answer from Jesus. We can't think, oh, Jesus, you just didn't understand the question when you answered this other one. We've got to see that Jesus knows their heart. And so he answers the real question that he wants to reveal to them, not their superficial question. The scripture does this when we read it. It answers questions sometimes that we don't even ask. Because guess what God wants us to know? Jesus then gives his answer in verse 29. And he shines the light of God's wisdom. Jesus answers them. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So say this with me. This is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him, that you believe in him in whom he has sent, in whom he has sent. Okay. well, that sounds pretty clear. (laughs) Let's let's unpack a little bit. Here's the point. Jesus answer could be telling us. That either God alone is the one who causes us to believe. This is the work of God that you believe. I'd never really thought that until recently. This is the work of God, or never really seen that in the scripture. Or it could be telling us that it is by believing in Jesus that we are enabled to do any work in which God is pleased. You see the differences? One is 
The only way that we believe is because God does a work in us. This is the work of God that you believe. Or it could be we do the work by believing. You see, there are two separate things. It's like these two women. Which one do you see? Well, I see both. I see both of them. They're both there. And it is a brilliant answer to their question. Because in that one answer, God reveals the glory and the power of faith. That it is a free gift. And yet, once it is received, it becomes the engine of believing. To do anything that pleases God. So the glorious answer of Jesus is that he reveals that believing in him is something that God accomplishes in us. For it is his work. And that in order for us to do anything that God requires, anything that would be pleasing to him, the starting point is always believing Jesus. Always. You can never please God in any way without starting with believing Jesus. This is such a powerful truth for us to know and understand and act upon. God's word comes alive to me when I read things like this. And I see what believing, the power of believing, what it really means. But I want to go deeper. I want to go even deeper than that. The command to believe in him who he has sent is directing us far more than to believe that Jesus is real. The true meaning of the command is to believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is. Who he says he is. Believe in his person, in his words, in his actions, in his promises, in his purposes, and to trust and to love him as our savior and leader. This is what is meant by the question, do you believe in Jesus? Now, John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote in later in chapter 20, verse 31, he says. But these things have been written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote these words to help us believe. In fact, the word believe. John used it 99 times in the Gospel of John. It's always the verb. It's never belief, noun. It's always verb. It's always the verb of believing and trusting God. He's written these things that we might believe Jesus is who he said he is. So... To think about this word, do you believe in him whom he has sent? We have to think, do we believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Do we believe that he's God's Messiah who came in human form? Do we believe that that uh, what the Bible says about our sin has separated us from God? And we need we're going to be punished for that sin unless something dramatic happens. Do we believe that Jesus died on the cross to absorb God's wrath for our sins? Do we believe that Jesus sacrifice is the only remedy for sin? The only adequate payment for sin. If we believe these things, then that's great. Believing facts about Jesus is the beginning of a relationship with him. But biblical believing is far more than just knowing certain things. Biblical believing is also trusting and completely relying on Jesus. So I need a volunteer for the next illustration. Maybe some young man would like to join me. Yeah, come on. All right, how? Just, just stand up. Look at the chair. 
How do you believe this chair can hold you up? Do you think it's designed properly, has the right materials and the right construction that it could hold you successfully? Okay, good, good. I think we all believe that this chair could hold how up. Is this chair holding you up right now? No, it, right, right the second. Is this chair holding you up? Yeah. But you're not in it. You're standing on your own power. And the chair, although it's beautiful, is not holding you up. But it could hold you up. Right? So what, what would it take for, for this chair to hold you up? You'd have to sit in it. So now, is the chair holding you up? Yes. yes. Now the chair is holding them up. I can believe that the chair will hold me up, but it's not holding me up until I sit in the chair. Right? Nice round of applause for half. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. So here's the here's the thought. Biblical faith is not just knowing these things about Jesus. Biblical faith is sitting in the chair, enjoying sitting in the chair, and realizing that the chair will hold you for eternity. It will never fail. That's what believing in Jesus is. This is the way to Christ. We can believe that he's real, but God wants to know us to know him personally. He bridged the gap between us and him by sending Jesus to remove the barrier of the sin and become the chair or the bridge back to God. To believe in Jesus is to commit our lives to him, to personally trust him to save us and lead us. Now, there are three aspects of this believing. And in conclusion, I want to run through these three aspects of believing, what believing means. Uh, some theologians have come up with Latin terms for this. I'm going to dispense with the Latin terms and just go straight to the English. But the first aspect of believing is believing the information about Jesus. There's a certain set of knowledge or knowing it's a mindful awareness of knowledge about Jesus. You can't have faith in nothing. Faith in nothing is not faith. It's mere wishing. There has to be actual content to your faith. When we say, do you believe Jesus died on the cross? There's an actual event. There's a real reality of Jesus dying on the cross for us. Some people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. And I would say hogwash. <laughs> That's not what the Bible teaches us. The content of what you believe truly matters. What if I believe that the devil was a superior God? Would I be saved? No. No. That would not save me. So we must believe in the right information. Where do we get the right information? From the revealed scriptures. That's where we find it. To believe in or to love Jesus Christ, you must first know who he is. I tell the kids at Crosswave, I said, do you love Frank? Do you love Frank? And they'll say, well, I won't, I won't know Frank. 
Should I love him or should I not? I said, well, how would you, how would you ever come to love Frank? Well, I'd, get to, I'd, I'd need to get to know him. And I said, exactly. You need to get to know the one who's going to save you. The one that you're going to love, who loves you. That's the first point, is knowing. There must be content, a set of information or knowledge about him. The second dimension is agreement or assent. It's being persuaded that not only is the content real, but it's true. According to James 2.19, even the demons know that Jesus is real. And the devil himself knows the truth about Christ. But neither of them have saving faith. Same with me. If I'm aware of the work of Christ, but not convinced intellectually that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross from our sin, that he rose from the dead. At that point, I would qualify to be a demon. So biblical believing goes beyond this point. Assent or agreement is the conviction that the content of your faith is true. It's not fake. And we've heard a lot about fake news here recently. The content of what you believe when you agree that it's true is the second step of believing. The third most crucial element of saving faith is that of personal trust. Uh, we see this in banks where they have a fiduciary responsibility, which means they are obligated to work on your behalf. So we, we can rely on it. And that's what Hal did when he finally, he saw that the chair, the content of the, of the knowledge was that it will hold me up. And then he agreed with that, that that was true. But it, it wasn't until he sat in the chair that he began to rely on the strength of the chair and not his own strength to hold him up. That's that way with Christ. When I put my life into the hands of Jesus, I rely on and depend upon him alone for my salvation and I reject all other means of saving for heaven. This is the crucial element of believing. And this is where the living fire of conviction lives. In the reliance upon Jesus Christ. The dependence upon him. It includes the previous aspects of knowing and agreeing. But reliance on God penetrates deeply into our hearts. So that the whole person lives in this experience of faith. This my friends is the work of God. It is the work of God that you believe like this. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is one verse which outlines all three of these dimensions. It's really interesting. Of biblical believing. Here's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we, thank also, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, that's the content of knowledge, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You agreed that it was true. You accepted it. You agreed that it was true. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work. Fiducia. We're relying on it. It's at work in you believers. We can see how believing is accepting the word. I mean, believing the truth 
accepting it as true, and then relying on it as true. To believe in Jesus is to know him, accept him as true, and trust him with all of life. And as Hebrews eleven six tells us, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you're thinking about God has promised you a reward, then you're into the place where you're going to rely on him completely. There's no other way to please God. Nothing done in obeying laws or obtaining approval from other men or following the ways and wisdom of of mankind or from superstition or for duty. Nothing done simply to please yourself. None of those are necessarily pleasing to God. Only what springs from believing him. One final thought. The reason Jesus gives for us to believe him, he gives us a reason. Is because the Father set his seal of approval on him. So not only is the act of believing, knowing and agreeing and trusting God, given to us by God, not only is the work of God in us, and not only is it given to us for us to accomplish his work, but also if we work with this believing content of faith, it honors and glorifies God to recognize his seal of approval on Jesus. If we recognize that God has approved Jesus and we believe what Jesus says, we are honoring God because he's the one who set his seal on Jesus. So you see, everything about the Christian life springs forth from believing. Believing. Trusting. Relying upon Jesus. So if I say, how can you be saved? We would not say by doing good things. We would say we're trusting Jesus. We're trusting Jesus. And our whole lives begins to be lived out in a way that honors the Lord God. Next time I speak, I think I'm going to explore this whole idea of believing that he rewards those who seek him. What does that mean? You mean there's a... It's not just a duty, it's a reward for following Christ. So, um, the message this morning is about believing. And if you have questions about this message, I want you to come see me. But I just want to encourage you to believe. You have many reasons to believe. You have the scriptures. You have the content of the scriptures. You have the fact that Jesus was was a man who fed thousands of people, who healed every disease, every injury, every disablement. He claimed to be approved by God. And although men from every tribe and nation have tried to disprove that, no one has ever, ever successfully disproved Jesus' claim. He is who he says he is. And he calls us to believe. And we ask God to do that work in us that we might believe him. Let's pray together. And I just ask you to um, check your own heart.
and your mind. You've heard the content about Jesus. You've heard who he is, what he's done, what he's promised. The next step is to believe that it's true. That's an important step is to hear. The next important step is to understand that it's true and to receive it as truth. You received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And then the, this, this last crucial step is to begin to rely upon it, to depend upon it, to understand this is where the fire and the commitment and the joy spring out of trusting God. And Lord, I pray that you would help you would accomplish this work in our hearts today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe you. Lord, help us to believe that Jesus Christ has the approval of God. He is clearly God's appointed representative to us. And that what Jesus says to us, this is the work of God that you may believe. Let us believe. Lord, we ask these things that that you would be exalted in our lives. Lord, that we would believe in the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. For he is God's anointed Messiah for us. He is the Savior of the world. And he is our Savior. Lord, I pray that this truth would resonate within us this whole week. And Lord, as we consider what you've said, we read the rest of this chapter of verse of chapter 6 and even the chapter before about the many miracles that Jesus has done. Lord, this would add credence and weight to the story. That these things are true. That these things were written that we might believe. And Lord, that we would recognize that everything that we ever want to do for you must start with believing you. Lord, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.